0: And scholars. You are listening to a Pleasure Podcast. For more from our sex podcast collective, visit PleasurePodcasts.com. Simple Health is revolutionizing the way we access birth control. Fill out an online questionnaire, get a prescription for the right one for you, and boom, monthly deliveries and automatic refills. No more forgetting, no more schlepping, and best of all, our listeners get the annual $20 prescription free. Just go to simplehealth.com slash SNS to give it a try. That's simplehealth.com slash SNS. Obviously, this is not a replacement for your annual well person exam. That's still super important, but it is the easiest way to get your birth control. Thanks for tuning in. Sluts and Scholars is a sex-positive, shame-free
1: educational podcast where we try to help you talk smart and fuck smarter. While we love
0: to give advice and resources, please note that this podcast or any emails from us are not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy. Welcome back to another week of sluts and scholars where we talk smart and fuck smarter. I'm Simone. I'm a law student and I really enjoy talking about and learning about sex. And normally I am joined by the other hostess with the mostest Nicoletta, but she is unavailable right now because she's busy being a tree at Stanford. Anyway, This week we're joined by Juniper Fitzgerald. She's a mother, a writer, a former sex worker, and a current academic. Her children's book, How Mamas Love Their Babies, was heralded as a patriarchy-smashing children's book and was the first to feature a sex-working mother. Lots of other work of hers has appeared in Tits and Sass, Mother Magazine, Pacific Standard, Broadly, and others. She has a forthcoming auto theory with feminist press as well. She's very accomplished. Welcome, Juniper.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much for having me.
0: Oh, I'm so happy to finally have you. It's been some technical back and forth, to be quite (laughs) honest. But I'm so glad you're joining us from the Midwest. Uh, Very exciting. We need to be more, you know culturally open to to guests we tend to focus on the coasts for sure
1: well that well thank you and that's probably why we've had technical difficulties because i am in the middle (laughs) of nowhere but um you know (laughs) the middle of nowhere voices are important too
0: Exactly, which is actually why I'm I'm so glad you're here. So middle of nowhere, talking about sex work. So like I said, we've talked about people who are former sex workers or current sex workers a lot on the coasts, but not in the middle of this country. How would you say the conversation around sex work is different there? Or if it's being had at all, am I just being judgy about people?
1: (laughs) Oh, no, that's a really good question. I think that, you know, the conversation is happening here in much the same way that it's happening in the rest of the country, um, in that it it is framed with this victimization framework, especially when we're talking about them presenting sex workers. Um, I would say that the only difference is that there's not this kind of um, what I would consider a countercultural movement um, really pushing back on that narrative. So I'm kind of the only person uh, in my small town having that conversation. and. Um, And the kind of response that I get, especially in academia, is like, oh, so you must be pro-trafficking then? Um, So that's a Mm. really hard uh, kind of misconception that I experience here in the Midwest. Um, And I think, you know, I've thought a lot about like Midwest nice and how that Mm. there's like this pernicious part of Midwest nice. And how it um, kind of hides um, a lot of things and hides the violence of the status quo, essentially.
0: Like, how small town are we talking?
1: Um, so, I would say that my town, um, it, when everybody's dogs are home, is probably 200,000 people um in the okay. city proper. So, we're not like super small town. Um we're definitely the biggest Not a village.
0: I was imagining a village.
1: <laughs> well, we're the biggest <laughs> we're the biggest town in the state. And basically every other town um in this state is populated by sometimes 300 people, 1000 people.
0: <laughs> like we literally okay. have towns okay. that have 300 people in them. Therefore, like being one of the only people uh, being vocal in this space, do you feel like you frame your discourse around sex work differently to maybe make it more palatable or understandable by Midwestern culture?
1: Um another really great question. I I wouldn't say that I do much to be palatable. I wish that I could do more honestly. I often spend <laughs> a great deal of time wondering how I can be more palatable to people. Um but uh you know, I'm just uh I have my lived experiences in the sex industry and I have a great passion for sex workers rights and mitigating exploitation and harm in the sex industry. So I would say that I'm a pretty Uh, vocal person in my community and probably thought of as relatively insane as a result which is not entirely wrong um but uh yeah so to answer your question no I am not palatable
0: (laughs) (laughs) but so do you have any like examples maybe of because you have a kid right
1: I do have an amazing child yes um, I'm, I mean, I'm I,
0: sure that any child of yours is just incredible.
1: <laughs> oh, yes, they are. They are amazing. And they um, actually change pronouns. Um, they are a gender expansive child. So um, they typically vacillate between she, hers and they, them pronouns. So I might kind of switch it up throughout the interview, but um Yes, she is amazing.
0: <laughs> I haven't heard that term before. Did you kind of come up with that or is it a, is it a commonly used term?
1: I think it's, I don't know if it's common, um, but I've definitely heard it in different queer spaces. So I cannot mm-hmm. take credit for it. But um, I love the, the imagery that comes with the idea of expansiveness too.
0: Yeah. How did your child communicate this to you?
1: Well, I've, um, it's, I mean, it's been a huge value of mine um, ever since I had my child to incorporate the language of fluidity um, into our daily lives. And so, ever since my child has been able to speak, I have asked them um, pretty f- regularly, I would say maybe weekly, what their pronouns are. And um, so, it's always just been kind
0: of a part of our lives. At what point do you think that your child or even children generally can conceive of like what a pronoun is? Because you know how like maybe sometimes till like kids aren't three, do they like realize like that they're, that the room doesn't change when they leave it or something like that? Do you know what I'm talking about?
1: Yeah. You know, what's so interesting is like, I grew up in a working class family in the Midwest, like farmers essentially, and people working in factories for the most part. and. So much of the conversation around gender, at least in that kind of working-class Midwest culture, is like, well, kids, you know, are just different. There's boys and there's girls, and and you can see the difference right away. Like, r- as soon as they're born, you can see the difference in gender. And it's like, <laughs> well, if you can conceive of... Like newborn children understanding that they're a girl, then you can probably conceive of newborn children understanding that they're not a girl. And so I wouldn't say that <laughs> newborns are you know, capable of that. But I definitely think that um, at a very young age, we know that children can start expressing um, even preference for race. I mean, if kids are brought up in a racist household, they will start expressing racism as young as two. So we know that children, Fuck. you know, can, can learn um, and unlearn as well, uh, good and bad mm-hmm. things and, and can learn um, to express their gender as well as a whole host of other things at very young ages.
0: But how do you think that they draw the connection between pronouns and gender? Like, I understand how you can you know, have racist behaviors and racist thoughts without being being able to like name race as a, as a kid, like not even having the vocabulary or like the cognitive, uh, conception of it. But so do you think it's like the same or I don't know, I'm just trying to figure out like when I was a kid, how did I realize that she, her meant that like, I felt like I was a girl. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah. I
1: mean, kids are really curious. Um, and Yeah, of course, saying like pronouns at a young age is kind of an abstract concept for a lot of children and including mine. So when I say that I asked my child pronouns kind of weekly, um, what I should say is that I asked them if they wanted to be a girl or a boy or both or neither that week. Um, And so they, you know, were under, they could understand what a girl was, what a boy was. And thankfully in my community, they also understand what non-binary and gender expansive is. So, you know, they've just had access to all of these different kinds of people and different kinds of identities and, um, have been, um, very excited to express, um, themselves, um,
0: with that language. That's awesome. What a rad way to be able to break down gender for kids. It seems like you're really good at breaking down concepts into like very sensible, understandable things for children. And so I guess that kind of brings you back to the to the book about like breaking down the concept of, I mean, all of this, what we call quote unquote, feminine labor as like being true, actual, real labor. And like this fucking hierarchy of labor is bullshit. And so making that clear to children, but also being able to explain like, what is one of the labors is sex work and how do you break that down for children?
1: Right. Um and I mean, that's kind of the the claim. Always is that even as a professor, you know, I I am told that I'm uh, my past is inappropriate, and I shouldn't be in the classroom by various people. And and the kind of assumption is that if you have some kind of experience in a stigmatized uh, labor or a stigmatized sexuality or stigmatized gender, you know, you're all the, the the narrative around all of those stigmatized identities is the same. It's that. You're you know, hypersexual, and that you shouldn't be around children. Um, so writing yeah. this book was really, um, I mean, euphoric in a way for me to just be able to like cross that boundary of um, being able to talk about sex work in a way that is not um, age inappropriate, obviously. So, um, and you know, I mean, some people think that. Teenagers shouldn't learn about sex. I mean, so there's just so many different ideas about what is appropriate. Um, So it's a struggle, but it's uh, definitely one I'm
0: thankful to be, you know, a conversation that I'm thankful to be a part of. How did you figure out how you wanted to talk about it? Because the way you distilled like asking your child what gender they are or feel like at any given day or time or week like that makes a lot of sense. But how do you have that conversation with children about sex work or your child? Yeah. So um,
1: obviously my child is five now and just beginning to ask questions about the body and ask questions about penises and vulvas. Um, So we haven't really talked about sex. So obviously a conversation about the nuances of the sex industry is not an appropriate conversation Mm -hmm. right now. Um, So what I have said to my child is um, there is one sex shop in town um, and, you know, it's got this really bright window and it's kind of miraculously um, considering how conservative my town is. um, It's kind of in the middle of our downtown. So if you're walking to like, Dinner, you can walk by this sex shop. And they have, you know, in the wow. window, it's like stiletto heels and sexy lingerie. Um, and I mean, it's really brightly lit. It looks like a really fun place. And so I mean, anytime that we've places. walked by it, and my child has been like, Oh, that wow, look at that pretty stuff. Um, the conversation has really just been, oh yeah, mama used to wear stuff like that for a job. And um You know, my kid is like, oh, okay, boring story. Thanks, mom.
0: (laughs) Like, I don't want to hear about your work, mom. Yeah, right.
1: (laughs) Like, whatever. (laughs) But so that's kind of the age appropriate. I mean, for me, and you can kind of see this in the book, too, is like the age appropriate conversation for me. And I think other parents have different boundaries. But for me, the age appropriate conversation is a lot about um clothing like i used to wear those kinds of shoes and i used to wear that kind of um outfit or lack of outfit you know um to make money Mm
0: -hmm. and that's
1: kind of the end of it um i do think that as she gets older um you know if she is curious about my work i will definitely be open and honest with her about it
0: what do you teach
1: um, so i I like to say that I am a professor of liberal propaganda. I am a sociology professor.
0: <laughs> um, okay. So,
1: with a focus on um, gender and sexuality, I get to okay. talk about things that I really love most of the time, which I'm again, really um, grateful for you know the opportunity to yes. be able to do that.
0: And so, in your academic work, I'm assuming that you draw on your experience as a sex worker, right? I do. Yeah. Or no. I do.
1: Um, I kind of straddle these two identities, my academic identity and my writing identity. And it's so interesting when people who only know my academic identity think that I'm controversial because I'm always thinking like, oh my God, wait till you find out my other...
0: (laughs) My other persona. <laughs> oh, so your academic, so your academic uh, persona is not Juniper. Correct, right. Oh. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> okay, okay. I'm starting to understand now. Sorry for missing that. So I thought that you both wrote, um, okay, so your upcoming thing with uh, Feminist Press, the, the auto theory book is not. like an academic publication under your academic name
1: that's correct but i do publish under my academic name as well um
0: so you're prolific as fuck (laughs) that is so sweet um how do you how do you make that distinction how do you decide which which person is is the um the name behind any sort of publication you make what an interesting sort of split identity to have because they're not so split (laughs)
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's a lo- it's just the level of controversy in whatever it is I'm writing, um, and I like mm. to keep you know kind of the theoretical stuff. Um, I will use my legal academic name, and then the more fun writing, at least um, as I experience it, I reserve that for my my writing name, my Juniper name.
0: But your TED talk is under your Juniper name. It is, yes. And which is such a great fucking TED talk, and everybody should go, should go listen and watch it. Thank but you. So, are you more, are you, sorry, I'm fascinated by this. I hope our listeners think this is as interesting as I do, because I'm about to go deep on this, like, identity <laughs> as a, because I'm also someone who uses a pseudonym. Um, yeah, I should have mentioned that. So, I am a law student, and my real name is not Simone, but I am in my law student capacity, like, I'm organizing, like, a big sex work decriminalization panel, right? And do I, like, use the the knowledge that I've accumulated through doing this podcast and speaking with people, uh, or am I just, like, this random, you know, law student who has an interest? <laughs> so I totally—so, <laughs> I mean, I don't think it's as salient as, as a two different lives is for you, but it, it's very interesting to me. So when you do decide to do something that public— are there like do, do they bleed into each other? Like do do the professional spaces of either you as Juniper or your academic profession <laughs> like intersect? Do you get called out in either? Like how do you handle that? Yeah, I mean you know when you when you frame it like that,
1: it sounds really exciting, like a really exciting life. <laughs> um, uh, I I would say that um, you know I have this other uh aspect to myself where I my the, my appearance changes um, immensely in ways that I don't see that with other people. Just um, for various reasons, I'm chronically ill. Um, my shape changes like from month to month, my hair changes all the time. Um, so I just feel like I'm really always changing and nobody ever notices me or can um, <laughs> put my face to whatever it is I'm doing. So I'm
0: I'm really thankful for that in some ways. <laughs> and so um, so you're, so the parents of your kids' peers are already like shit-talking you because you're a gender and sexuality professor. Oh, yeah. Not the other stuff. Oh, my gosh. You know, um,
1: some of my child's uh, peers in school, their parents have actually found my writing name, and which, you know, my Juniper name, um, and have written emails about how inappropriate I am and how I should not be allowed around children, which is really hilarious in a kind of superficial way. Um, also really disturbing mm-hmm. um to think about in a more you know, more deeply. But um yeah. but yeah. It's it's a trip for sure. Wait.
0: I, I just wanna I need to know more about that. Like what exactly happened and what is happening.
1: Yeah, so um So yeah, that I've just received emails from parents, you know, stating that I'm inappropriate because of my writing under my Juniper name, um, because of my work, not only in the sex industry, but now as a sex worker rights advocate. Um, And you want to know something really fucked up, which I haven't um, spoken about publicly just yet. But um, by the time this podcast comes out, I probably will be speaking about it on Twitter and elsewhere. <laughs> but I've actually been asked to leave the school that my child is at.
0: Um, what? So, like yeah. to take your child out or to just not show up for pickup? What's that? Are they, asking you, are they asking you to take your child out of the school or for you to not like show up to pick up or be involved? No, in
1: the they theater? asked me to take my child out of the school. <gasps>
0: Um, What are you going to
1: do? It's a series of, you know, my child has been bullied a bit. um, And I'm not sure if that's related to her gender or if it's just um, that there's bullies everywhere. And I've asked the school to address the bullying. They're really frustrated with me asking them to address the bullying that I have personally received from other parents. Um, And they just, yeah, they asked us to leave. So, Is this a public um, school? On the heels of being called inappropriate um, by other parents, it feels like a You're major being ostracized. Yeah, it's um, definitely a power move. And uh, is this a public? Is this a public school? No, this is a Montessori school. So it's a private oh, school. Those fuckers. Um, that we were receiving some financial aid to attend, and. Um, A few months ago, they took away our financial aid, uh, somehow, you know, was not ever going to be reinstated. And now this, it's really wild. And, you know, it's kind of what my therapist would call crazy making, where you're just like, is this happening because dot, 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 or am I just kind of losing my mind? What is happening?
0: (laughs) That's horrifying. That's a really fucked up thing to do, both to a child and a parent. I know. That just seems so, I mean, I don't really know what the mission or like philosophy behind Montessori is, but isn't it like mushy-gushy? Like, isn't that a fucked up thing to do to a kid and a parent kind of at odds with with the intention of the school? One would think. um,
1: But I mean, I think that that's, and that's what I really want to speak publicly about after I kind of have a handle on the situation is like, That is the stigma of sex work and gender, like this intersection of queerness and the sex industry, or stigmatized labor in general, like even subconscious biases, you know, I, I'm, even if people at this school are not intentionally marginalizing myself and and my child, it 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 could be subconscious, who knows? Um, but I do think that the lingering stigma, of that intersection of queerness and stigmatized labor, um, definitely has some role to play in this.
0: That makes a lot of sense. I, I read in one of your interviews, I don't remember exactly which one, but um, you said that, or maybe you wrote this, uh, the myth that we can't humanize sex workers for children without introducing age-appropriate, age without introducing age-inappropriate conversations is no less outrageous and damaging than the idea that LGBTQ people should be kept away from children. Sex workers are people, sex workers are family, sex workers are parents. And so even just hearing you talk about how this intersection of like, queer, and like sex worker beingness seems to be like the crystallization of this stigma. Like so obviously of this specific Venn diagram. Absolutely. You have the proof. The proof is in the pudding. Yes, absolutely. And you know, this is coming, like, I think
1: about these things happening to me and I have, um, I'm so privileged in the safety nets that I have now that I am, I I am in the straight labor, labor force. Um, and, and just to think about, like how fucked up it is that if that's happening to me, imagine how m- much more horrible it is for people who do not have the kind of safety nets that I do. And, um, it's just, it's wild. And it's also, I mean, I think another part of this that feels really depressing is that, um, so many feminists, I, I mean, I consider myself a feminist, not a swerf or a turf, obviously, but I, I think a lot of SWERFs and turfs, people who call themselves feminists but are sex worker exclusionary or trans exclusionary, you know, they are helping to propagate this social stigma, um, this really alienating stigma. It, and it is indeed lethal stigma.
0: What's really sounding fucked up to me is with this, like, taking your kid or kicking your kid outside of this school, my understanding is also that you're not allowed to homeschool your child because of your previous work, right?
1: That is correct. So um, I was in a, a sting a while ago in Las Vegas. And um, essentially in my state, if you have something on your record that prevents you from teaching elementary students like in a public school which a sting on your record would prevent one from doing so um then you if you're if you can't teach at a public school then you cannot teach your own child that's the law in my state so yeah i am legally not allowed to homeschool my own child
0: there's just, like, so much to unpack there. I'm just curious, like, again, as someone who seems really able to uh, commun- break down things into a completely, like, age-appropriate and understandable conversation with children, like, how would you explain this, like, not only the not being able to homeschool situation, but also, like, the fact that they're being asked to leave that school? Or how, how do you, like, expect to frame it?
1: Yeah, I you know, I wouldn't um... – I definitely would not tell my five-year-old any of the things that I'm telling you. I I think um, I we've had a lot of conversations about bullying and uh, I actually just got a really amazing book called like the Child Empowerment Book or something like that. It's a workbook for helping kids empower themselves to deal with bullies. So we've had a lot of conversations around bullies Um And I I guess that's where I kind of keep the conversation maybe when she's older and is a little more curious about some of the things that we went through as a family, um, then, then maybe I would expand a bit. My hope is that she doesn't, you know, find out all this stuff, um, by accidentally finding my writing name or something, but, Mm. um, you know people create their own paths and i can't control what she um may or may not find and we know we all find out things about our parents that are perhaps a bit uncomfortable and oh yeah <laughs> we find ways of dealing i oh, guess oh yeah
0: yeah no that that's that is entirely true um, <laughs> yeah i'm just thinking about like Explaining thing like what if she did come across like what would you say?
1: Um, so again, I really want to have open communication with my child that is age appropriate. If she happens to come across something before the age at which I would feel it was appropriate to have these conversations, um, you know, I would just have the conversation early. I suppose I I was actually just on a um, field trip with college aged uh, queer kids who are just amazing. And their understanding <laughs> and use of technology was mind-blowing to me. So I assume that my child is probably, you know, going to be able to build a house with a 3D printer by the time she's 10 years old. So, <laughs> um, Oh, fuck yeah. You know, if she finds... In five years? Awesome. <laughs> if, she, if she finds this stuff, it's, it's a chance for communication. That's always the struggle. I wonder, I often wonder if um cis men ever have this struggle like where you're true you're constantly choosing like the where the line is between creating art and um like the potential for embarrassing or hurting your child like hurting in an emotional Mm. way um because as an artist you know you have you have to be creating but um a lot of art is controversial and like where is that boundary for keeping your child safe from the, um, the hostile feedback from people who do not like controversy.
0: Yeah. I mean, we, I've spoken with, um, porn performers who have children or who expect to have children. And that's like a very interesting thing that they think about as well. And I definitely think something that I think male performers think about far less, because I think just like the stigma of being a, a, a femme sex worker is just so much bigger. Absolutely.
1: I mean, we have all over the world in all different languages. One of the worst insults that you can say to someone is that their mother
0: is a whore. Um, yeah. You know, so wait. Yeah. Um, the insult is not, yeah. The insult in French is not, <laughs> I mean, to a girl you say slut, but to a guy, you say you're the son of a slut. Right. Oh my gosh. Elaborate. Tell me your thoughts, professor. (laughs) Um, You know,
1: I once read this piece years ago, explaining how um, almost all Western religions start with an origin story wherein uh, an exceptional man is born of a virgin mother. And, you know, if we think about it in terms of that, like, we literally the core of our cultural narrative is that in order for men to be extraordinary they have to be unbridled from feminine sex female sexuality or you know sex acts that are done by female presenting people and so i definitely think that that's part of it um yeah you know it is it's layered and complex
0: (laughs) Y'all, we have a super exciting new sponsor that's doing something totally revolutionary with birth control access in the U.S. They're called Simple Health, and they're here to make your health care simple, starting with online birth control prescriptions and free home delivery. Did you know that over 19 million people lack reasonable access to contraceptive methods, and over one-third of people have taken their birth control? inconsistently, to save money. Nearly three-quarters of pharmacies don't provide home delivery of medications, and in Chicago, for example, 32% of people live in pharmacy deserts. Since 2007, 630 pharmacies in rural areas have shut down, depriving those people of access. That is unacceptable, and Simple Health is doing something about it. Here's how it works. Go to simplehealth.com/sns, where you'll fill out a comprehensive online profile, and then you answer some questions formulated to get the best birth control for you—your body, your preferences, your insurance situation. Then a licensed doctor reviews your information and determines if you're a good candidate for birth control, and then they'll write you a prescription for the right method—the pill, the patch, the ring. Then they ship it to your door for free, and you never have to worry about forgetting a refill or missing a pill thanks to automatic refills. Oh, and best of all, Simple Health is free with most insurance plans, and for those without insurance, it's still super affordable. Pills start at just $15 a month, and monthly shipping is free for everyone. The annual prescription is usually $20, but. Our listeners can try Simple Health for free. Just go to simplehealth.com/sns or enter the code SNS at checkout. Also, just want to mention this isn't a replacement for your annual well-person exam with your gyno. You still need to do that for your overall health, but this is the most convenient and comfortable way to get your birth control. So, try it out simplehealth.com/sns or enter the code SNS at checkout. Okay, so we're talking about, like, a lot of the shitty people out there, but, like, who's in your boat with you? Tell me about the other parents. Tell me about the other parents who are current sex workers or former sex workers or who have GNC kids. Like, tell me about that kinship.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say that um, other sex-working parents are my lifeline. Um, In fact, um, a person who is still working in the sex industry – um I I was there when when she found out she was pregnant. She was the first person I called when I found out I was pregnant even before I told um uh, my Aww. partner. And um you know I will never forget after giving birth to my child, I had this wonderful opportunity to go to San Francisco and make a porn with Madison Young and Giselle um <gasps> and Annie Sprinkle was there. Um like just amazing people and many of whom were parents themselves, um, mostly queer, non-binary, trans people. And that kind of community is truly how I understand revolution. I mean, just being together with each other, um, making a porn and then going out to dinner together with our children and our partners <laughs> is really um just revolutionary, at least in my eyes, forming that community, um, a community that shares, um, you know, we, we understand how deeply stigmatized all of these identities are. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, and even having Twitter and being able to talk about some of these issues and some of the, um, direct messages that I've received from complete strangers stating that they are sex-working parents Mm. and um, that it's just nice to know that other sex-working parents are out there is really quite lovely.
0: You can't really find out that another parent is a sex-working parent like casually or easily. Like there is this necessity of keeping it secret because of the society we live in, and so being able to find one another must therefore be you know all the more challenging but all the more immensely rewarding and relieving and all of that Oh right yes, absolutely you know i'm
1: I'm lucky in that i've been I was in the sex industry for a really long time um, for most of my adult life so I've just kind of had these friendships that have lasted um, two decades and We've all had children, you know, together, um, not with each other. Well, some of us have had children with each other, <laughs> um, but we've had children, you know, around the same time um, and we've just kind of grown together. Um, I, I hope that kind of, you know, I see some of these uh, new, newly minted sex workers online and I do hope that they are able to foster the same kind of community I know it's much more difficult um since FOSTA and SESTA passed for example to create community mm, yeah so um yeah I mean I, I hope that I can use my my platform to engender changes to policies that prevent community for example but um but in any case yes community is so important and so is representation and um finding your people.
0: Is one of the important things about decrim, right? So you mentioned that part of the reason that like you can't homeschool, is that like if you've been a part of a sting and therefore can't teach in a public school, you can't homeschool your own child. But if decrim were to happen, then the sting would like be expunged. Is that true?
1: Oh, I, you know, I don't know about expunging records, but I do know that under, I mean, decrim is problematic too. We a lot of us in the sex worker rights movement are actually talking about anti-criminalization, um, and the difference Ooh. being acknowledging that it's a process rather than just a policy change. Because, for example, in New Zealand, you know, you who, where they have implemented decrim, there's still racist social structures. Like, there's there's decrim on the books, but people are still getting deported. You know what I mean? Um, so. Yeah. Um, in any case, uh, I'm not sure about expunging, but decrim being the policy change that would prevent the criminalization of the buying or selling
0: of sex. Mm-hmm. And framing that as separate from anti-criminalization because you can have the policy, but as long as like the society and the stigma and the problem that other things are in place, it's not.
1: It's not enough. Yeah. So anti criminalization, and you can check out the Desiree Alliance's um, comments on anti criminalization and the anti criminalization principles that we actually drafted about a year ago. But, um, oh, yeah. So the the idea is like, yes, we need decrim as a policy, but we also need, as a community, to be committed to dismantling white supremacy and dismantling heteropatriarchy. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm.
0: So yeah, anti crime for the win. Do you, but do you think the policy? Do you think the policy can be? So you think that policy is sort of easier to implement in name? It's you don't think that you know the policy will truly only be in effect if you're also like does the does the order matter?
1: I mean, that's always the the question. I think um, the more that I dig into activism spaces, I I feel like that is the heart of. conversation, like, do you try to change culture and language first, or do you try to change policy? And I think both are important. And I think the question of which one should happen first is an important one. Um, But I, you know, I guess for me, it doesn't matter which one comes first necessarily, just to acknowledge that you have to have policy change and cultural change, and changing one Mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily
0: mean change to the other. Yeah. And it's also so hard when you recognize both and like know that in order to, I guess, to kind of come back to the beginning of our conversation to like make your messaging more palatable and achieving either one or the other, you like, it almost feels like you have to sacrifice one because you're trying to get those like middling people or people who just don't know anything and people feel, you know, people get defensive and and don't want to listen when you're telling them that all of the things need to change and their thought process is wrong and the policy is wrong. Right. Um, like one thing that I personally really struggle with, so something that I'm really involved in is reproductive justice and I work a lot on abortion access, but just like the rights of pregnant people and what it to the right to be pregnant, to not be pregnant, to get to keep your kids, like to get to not take care of your kids, like all of that stuff. Um, but one of the things I struggle most, it, most with, like if, for example, I'm like writing an op-ed about an abortion restriction and it's like, Do And I'm trying to get the people in the middle, right? So, like, do I frame it in the women's rights narrative, knowing that that is something that will mean something to them that they will feel drawn to? Mm -hmm. Or do I stand firmly in, like, my reproductive justice framework of, like, pregnancy and abortion is not a women's issue. Like not only women get pregnant, but also not only like pregnancy is like (laughs) far more than just a women's issue. Like that's what I mean. Like that's such a fucking hard thing to do. It is really hard. I mean, I, I am
1: so bad at, um, speaking to the middle. Although I think as a white cis person, I have somewhat of an obligation to do that. I mean, I feel like Exactly. Um, you know, like I feel like I have an obligation to dismantle. I, I mean, I don't think that. I know that I have an obligation to dismantle the systems that I have systemically benefited from my whole life. Um, but I mean, the center feels really violent to me. Um,
0: mm-hmm. and,
1: and so it's, di- you know, it's difficult to try to move people. Um, when you think that their ideas are violent at their core, I mean, somebody, you know, it's kind of a centrist position nowadays to think that a Nazi should have a platform. Like everybody gets a platform, right? It is like like the centrist, you know, the centrist (laughs) battle cry. And I just, I mean, it takes my breath away. It's like, how do I even speak to somebody who thinks that? Um, but I guess yeah. that's where American politics are right now.
0: Well, it's really interesting. So George Lakoff has this thing. Um, he has this book called Thinking Points, and people have different feelings than George Lakoff. But um, he comes. He, he talks about how like there's this idea of bi-conceptuals and like bi stuff. I totally get, but um, <laughs> but like bi-conceptuals is like people aren't really centrist. It's that like they they like haven't yet decided like where they land on a specific issue. Ah. So they're the people that you can sway. Interesting. And so that's why they seem centrist. And so I totally agree with you that the center feels really fucking violent, but it's almost because perhaps they feel it feels so violent because these are people who could believe Right. The violent thing. And just knowing that someone isn't already like that's fucked up and wrong. Like what you're saying that people could be like, yeah, I understand why Nazis should be able to speak. Like, even if they don't actually believe that they should, the fact that they can see why they should. Right. Is so terrifying. But that's also why there's all the more urgent need to speak to them in a language that they understand to make sure that that I can see how it's okay doesn't become there. It is okay. Right. Absolutely. Yes. It's, it's really
1: hard.
0: It's so hard, and I also know you have to go to bed and have a kid to take care of. And we, <laughs> it's getting very late. I feel like I could talk about this with you for a long time. It's such a um, great conversation. I'm though. just wondering. Oh, good. I'm glad you're enjoying it too. I guess one thing that I would really like to uh, that I feel like obviously you do a great job on generally, but like resources for sex working parents and people who maybe haven't tapped into the community or who don't have anybody like there's an internet community, but what sort of specific ideas, suggestions, things that you find can like really benefit sex working parents and also parents who are not sex working parents, but to better support sex working parents. Like what do you, actually yeah, let me rephrase my question. Like what do you wish that like the world did vis-a-vis sex working parents besides just Treat them like okay. that that is a great question. Um,
1: So, in terms of resources, I would say to sex working parents that are listening to this, um, there we're actually revamping the Desiree Alliance um, parenting site. So, hopefully, by the time this podcast comes out, you will be able to jump online and find that that website. Um, Also, Swap Behind Bars is doing amazing stuff. So this. Is an offshoot of SWAP USA, which is the Sex Worker Outreach Project. And um, SWAP Behind Bars is an organization that works directly with incarcerated sex workers. So, helping with um, things behind bars, you know, resources behind bars, and then also helping with resources once um, inca- the incarcerated sex worker is released from jail or prison. There's a lot of sex worker rights organizations in the US that have done amazing work. Um, But unfortunately, again, with FOSTA and SESTA, uh, many of these organizations have had to disband for fear of being accused of trafficking because, you know, now even assisting a sex worker in need can be considered trafficking. So um, Mm -hmm. I would also say to any sex working parent that is listening to this program, you can find me on Twitter and I am always happy to do GoFundMe campaigns or whatever, um, m- you know, money raising platform you prefer. If you are in a bad situation and need help just getting fast cash, um, please DM me. My DMs are always all- open, and um, hmm. and depending on where you're at Not in the for world. Dick pics. I'm sorry. Not for dick pics. <laughs>
0: Not for dick pics. No. <laughs> no nope. I just always feel like you need to say that like I feel like whenever you say like my dms are open there is someone out there with a penis who will be like oh that means I can send them a photo of this <laughs> you know <laughs> Sorry, I really caveat. don't understand <laughs> oh what being a femme on the internet done right <laughs> my goodness um yep. but yeah
1: depending on where you're at in the world I um I I have a lot of really amazing people in my life, and I I like to think that I am able to get people in contact with um, whomever they might need at that moment, um, depending on where they're at. So please DM me. (laughs) And there's a lot of other sex-working parents on Twitter as well.
0: And I think also for like non-sex-working parents, I don't know, I am not a sex worker, but I think it's super important obviously to center to center the voices of sex workers but to also be very clear that like this is an issue that like everybody should care about as a parent as like a person who lives in this world who lives in like this capitalist system that we're in and if you are trying in any way to make it better like this is an important thing that like not only sex workers should be like putting their bodies on the line for um so just saying we all have a responsibility too
1: absolutely i Few years ago, wrote a piece for Yahoo News of all places, and um, <laughs> it was about how my mother actually lost custody of me um, because she had had an affair. Mm-hmm. So this was like the eighties, yeah. and in mm-hmm. in the Midwest, you as a mother could literally lose custody, lose any kind of access to your child um, for ha- having the audacity to fuck someone. So, obviously, my mother was um, having an affair that was not commercial. But, you know, the parallels between um, my mother's experience and my fear as a former sex worker and a parent of custody issues, I mean, th- those parallels are things that we should all be concerned about. If you can lose your children because you have made a decision to have consensual sex with another adult or multiple adults, I mean, that's scary.
0: Yeah. No, it really is. Uh, that's so, I'm gonna, I'm actually in a class where we talk about this stuff right now called family law, but it's really oh, just about, interesting. like, who's allowed to marry who, who's allowed to fuck who, like, and then, like, once you get divorced, like, how much does the state get involved? Like, how can you judge the fitness of a parent? And, like, now legally you're not allowed to judge the, like, moral character of a parent when it comes to custody. But, like, obviously who's deciding that? Uh, the judge. And the judge has biases. Anyway, it's all very interesting, fucked up, complicated stuff that we could talk about forever. So you're telling people to reach out to you. How can they find what you're doing? How can they read your, how can they find your upcoming book? Is there a title we should be looking for? Uh, Let us, tell us, tell us, tell us. Yes. Well, thank you for that plug. Um,
1: It'll be out by Feminist Press um, as soon as it's done. (laughs) Hopefully by next (laughs) fall. Um, And it's had about a million different titles at this point, but it is an auto theory um, looking at the intersection of Work in the sex industry, chronic illness, drug use, and motherhood. And the thing that I really love about this auto theory, so it's kind of in the style of Maggie Nelson's work, um, which I adore and really respect. Um, what I really enjoy about this new book that I'm writing is I'm able to, I've kept a journal since I was nine years old almost daily. And to be able to go back and look what? at the, um, the kind of horror language that I was using as a child and just really internalized sexist ideas to be able to like see that in writing and unpack it is really fun, <laughs> kind, kind of traumatizing, yeah. but really fun. And that's um, part of the book is like all of these old journal writings
0: from when I was a child. Oh, yeah. No, the fucked up shit we internalize as children. One girl uh, called me a slut, and then I was like, well, you're just a tomboy. And, like, making that a real, like, it basically insulting, like, in what was in effect? Like, just her gender presentation. Like, it's right. the things we fucking say as kids. You know what's it's amazing? Like, I just think back on that moment. <laughs> yeah.
1: I found a journal entry, and I was nine years old, where I literally say that um, – a fate worse than death would to become a prostitute. And it's wow. like just a few years after that that I actually became a prostitute. So,
0: I mean, it's just really <laughs> fascinating. A fate worse than death. Yeah. Well, I mean, death is kind of, I mean, death is kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> this has been such a great fucking conversation. Um, so, yes, you can find Juniper on... Twitter at Juniper Fitz. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, if you want to stay up to date with what we're doing, you can follow us on Instagram at scholars on Twitter at scholars. It's super duper tremendously, totally, honestly, so fucking much helps us if you rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That takes like two seconds. And if you have more than two seconds and more than two cents, you can support us on patreon.com slash slutsandscholars. Thanks for joining us.